0: We sat down in his dressing room, backstage at Jazz at Lincoln Center, also known as the house that Winton built. I, I want to thank you for letting us into your dressing room. Not many people get to come back here. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm afraid to know if these walls could speak, you know. I don't want to know. You no, know,
1: this is another era. No, everything is, there's just a lot of music going on in, in
0: here. here. I, I like what you've done with the place. You get a piano in the dressing piano, room, yeah. not just any piano. There's a serious piano. Time we here.
1: You spend uh, good time here. It be, it belies my my actual level of ability to play, because uh, but yeah we, I spend but a lot of a lot of the uh, cats in the band come when I'm the nights I'm not here people come practice and work on stuff and uh, so a, a lot of us use the room. It's my room, but we 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 all use it.
0: And then there's work being done right there. What are we looking at?
1: Right. Well, that was supposed to be an arrangement of uh, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, but we ended up not not using that arrangement.
0: But you will put in real time right here, creating, composing, yeah, conceptualizing.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I do that all the time. So I'm, I'm no always, matter where you are. Yeah, most of the times I'm in an automobile because I'm afraid to fly, so... I, um, I, got, I, I, I logged in a good 16 hour drive last night.
0: You just got here from Chicago. I just got here, yesterday. A lot of people don't realize this fear of flying thing. I mean, Renaissance man, right? <laughs> Pulitzer Prize winner. Afraid to what? what are you afraid of in flying?
1: What everybody in the world is afraid of. I, mean, I said, we all—all all the people who have fear, a phobia of flying, all have the same fear. You may have it. I do, We're, but I do it anyway. You know, I do it anyway too. I mm-hmm. mean, if I—I I have to go to Korea at the end of this week, so I'm—I'm I'm, I'm not going to drive.
0: So what do you do? What I do you- just
1: get on it and act like I'm cool. <laughs> I don't—I mean, you wouldn't know if you sat next to me. I fake it.
0: But inside you're churning.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know. But I mean, I—I I, I do a good job.
0: Now, you came here from Chicago, Chicago in a car, in a bus? In a what, car,
1: yeah, car. Who's driving the car? Frank Stewart. Frank,
0: the great photographer. The great Frank
1: Stewart. He's a good Frank man. Frank and Big Boss Murphy is our road manager. And,
0: and what do then, you do during the ride? What, what?
1: Well, I edited some scores, and I, I, took, I took notes, because I'm going to be in the studio after we finish this. And I, if, when I get my phone, I can show you what some notes look like. like a, I look at the score, and then I, I give mixed notes, like what, what we're going to do. If you reach me the phone, I'll show it sure, to you. Sure. Not that anybody on the radio can tell what we're doing. Where is it? It's, it's over there somewhere, right? Do you see it? I don't think I you see it. You see my phone anywhere, is it
0: So this is a this is a
1: record we have coming
0: out. And this was done on the on the car, ride? In the
1: in the car part of it. I mean it's too much work to do in, in one ride. But it's uh each song probably takes like an hour and a half to two hours to, to, to listen to and go through what the notes should be. Um,
0: and you so can lock in and block everybody out, whatever yeah, well else this, is going but on. But
1: this, this is not composed, this is just notes. So this mm-hmm. this is instructions of how we're going to work with the recording we have, wow. what we're going to do, where we should raise instruments, how we balanced it.
0: At B, tom toms are echoey and in the bass's way. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that's the
0: criticism. We got to fix that. So this is from right. just listening to it on the, on the earphone. From listen, listening
1: to it after we put the recordings together. Right. But our, our, our engineer, Todd Whitelock, engineer, producer, we've been working with each other for a very long time. So a lot of times in the notes, I, I'll say some wild stuff. <laughs> but it's just us dealing with it. Can we eliminate the stomps,
0: right? Right. Less bass or more piano on the bass diet from beginning. This is, I mean, this is how it works, right? Yeah. This is how you
1: do yeah. it. Yeah, and that's 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 just uh, but that's yeah, nonstop. Correct? Yeah, for me, it's not it's nonstop. It's a blessing. Uh, you know, I write the music, I work on it, I uh, I, I we all do that. I mean, I I, I work on it, but we have ten arrangers in our band, and everybody works on music. This particular recording that we're working on now is called a uh, Jazz in Art, mm-hmm. and it has um. Pieces from different different composers. Bill Frizzell is one of them. Um, Doug Womble is another. Vincent Gardner from our orchestra, a fantastic trombone player and singer, is, is one also, artistic director of Jazz Houston. Chris Crenshaw is another composer. Papo Vasquez, phenomenal ge- genius of Afro Latin music, wrote a great piece. in six, he writes out all the Bata drum, all the parts he writes out. He's, he's unbelievable. And, um, who else wrote wrote pieces? We we it's, it's seven pieces on this on this recording, extended pieces inspired by different artists. Winslow Homer is one. And, uh, the Repose and All Things Tim Armacost, very interesting composition he did based on Mondrian's paintings. What I find yeah. incredible is that this is
0: nonstop, and you say. That you don't even feel like you're at full capacity. That's what
1: you tell me. No, no, yeah, I'm, from I'm, time to time, I don't understand that. Th- this is I'm, I'm. just uh. Well, I, I kind of paced myself the whole time to get to this age. In up in this age, I figured I would uh, I would start to really be. Really start to to. Be productive and get all the things that we've been doing all these years out and be very active about uh, participating in our culture and be even more serious yeah be even, <laughs> even more serious like I'm, I'm so deathly serious at this point and uh, and grateful you know though, i mean just to, to 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 get to that kind of humility and work ethic out of gratitude for having had the opportunity to to be out here all these years and interface with people and their kids and work on music and play and work with so many fantastic musicians and people and then uh, to be able to develop an organization like we have and to play Duke Ellington's great music, and to realize the dreams of a lot of musicians and the artists that came before me that I studied with, and uh, were mentored by, and to to be able to have the energy and the creativity to last this long and do it.
0: Does it feel like you're running out of time? Is there some urgency? I, I'm here? always
1: I always feel like I'm running out of time. I, you know, I felt like I was running out of time when I was 20, so I always feel like that. But. Uh,
0: they're not enough hours in a day.
1: No, not not for an individual person. But this work goes right. on. It was going on before you were born. It's going to go on long after you've passed away. Right. So I'm also cognizant of that, you know, and one, and whatever you do fits into the canon of all the other things that have been done, whatever you develop. Right. And there'll be other people who will develop, and they're doing it while you're doing it. Right. So it's not like the world needs your contribution. It's just you're a part of that of that continuum.
0: I would disagree with that. The world needs your contribution. <laughs> yeah, the world's done so. pretty well with it.
1: <laughs> they would do good without it too. <laughs> <laughs> Humble man.
0: Um, let, let's talk about this movie. Buddy Bolden. First king of jazz. That's mm-hmm. pretty accurate, right? Or at yeah. least one of them.
1: No, he's the first one.
0: We meet him in a flashback. He's in a mental institution. He hears Louis Armstrong on the radio. It helps him start reflecting on his life. And then we get into this movie. Mm -hmm. I never really considered Buddy Bolden. There was a point in your life when you'd never heard of him either. What was your first sort of contact with his name and his work?
1: Well, some of the older musicians in New Orleans would talk about him. And the legend of him at that time was that he worked in a barbershop. He edited a newspaper called The Cricket. And the, the women loved him. He was handsome. And he could play. So I knew that part of his story.
0: Since childhood?
1: Yeah, probably since nine, eight, nine, ten. I played in Danny Barker's Fairview Baptist Church band for a little while, and Danny knew all the old folklore, and he was trying to teach younger musicians at that time how to play New Orleans music. We weren't that interested in playing it, at least I wasn't. I can't speak for everybody. That was in the post Civil Rights era, early seventies, and we, to, you know, talking about our afros and Malcolm X and. Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, you go from that to talking about Won't You Come Home, Bill, Bill Bailey, that was a stretch. Right, James Brown too. He, James Brown, you know, J.B., was he was still on the scene, but he was kind of in that throat period that was going into Parliament. It was going into where J.B. had a couple of hits, but it wasn't like he was in the 60s, you know. Right. And uh, that's when Stevie was ascending, and, right. and that's around the time of what's going on. Right. And, and uh, you know, for somebody my age, that early 70s, a big difference between the early and kind of to mid 70s and the late 70s. Huge the, difference. Disco yeah, at the yeah, ends, right? Huge difference, yeah. You could yeah. just see stuff. I was playing in a funk band almost that whole time. So we we could, we could had a, a pulse kind of on the direction of the music. But the New Orleans music, I, I was blessed because my father made us go do it. And we didn't want to do it, my brother and I. Okay. But uh, the songs I learned with the Fairview Baptist Church Band, I still can remember. Stuff like over in the glory land of Jane joy every second line uh but um, lay down my burden lay down my bird down by the riverside okay. those songs I still I can still still remember them and play didn't he ramble you know it's all the kind of New Orleans classic songs of St James infirmary that were not something that somebody that was 8 or 9 years old, 10, was interested in, in knowing at that time.
0: And so then you, you learn of this this Bolden guy, and the legend is out there. <laughs>
1: right.
0: And then the, the more you learn about him, you had to be in awe.
1: Well, I heard a, uh, there was a book written by a guy named Donald Marquis. Um, Don, he's still alive. And this book was called In Search of Buddy Bolden. And right. it was factual, unbelievably well-researched interviews with people who were around when he was around and it dispels a lot of the myth of Buddy Bolton in terms of him working at a, in a newspaper and uh, him be, being a barber and all of that. Not true. No, but okay. the, but the, the depth of his playing was true. What people said about him... Uh, f- First-hand accounts of just they say he could, he's first one who played the blues, married the blues with the church music. So, well, there's know,
0: a great know. line in the movie where he says, "I make the church music better." <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> well, that's what improvisation is. the Root of it is improve. So you, you
0: he, but that's that's blasphemy, though, right? I mean, well, in, a, in a certain in a certain sense,
1: not it's, not not necessarily. Like it depends on who whether it's blasphemy it depends on who you are. You know? And it's like a, a lot of times musicians would be castigated for doing hymns, but when Louis Armstrong recorded, when the Saints go margin in, nobody messed with him. Whereas on other hand, Sister Rosetta Thorpe right. got got uh, excommunicated, I don't know how many times, three or four times. You know, I, I mean, at this point, what, what do you have to do to get excommunicated? Right. <laughs> I don't think you can find anything you can do to do that at this point. Right.
0: He um, th- there's a scene in the movie where he jumps out of a hot air balloon. <laughs> I mean, that's a stretch. Dan Pritzker is the the the, uh, the the brains behind the movie. This is out of his
1: imagination, or did that ever happen? Yeah, no, Man Bolden didn't do that. Nobody did any <laughs> such thing. A, with, somebody might have done it. He didn't do it. But he jumps
0: out. He's got a horn in his hand, a cornet in his hand, and he starts playing as he's halfway down. But there's, you know a, the, there's a band on the ground that's playing traditional music yeah. out of out of the mm-hmm. off, off the off the notes and everything else. And but, and he he blows them out of the water.
1: But the movie is not is not a uh, is is not is not a biopic. It's not literal. No, the movie is it's the myth of Buddy Bolden, right. and it's it's a version of what Buddy Bolden life could have been, or what he meant. And a lot of it is symbolic. Right. Uh, could he have had a manager like Bartley? Yeah. Do, if people had managers like that, who would have them doing any kind of thing just to get out there? Definitely. Anybody who worked in a record company knows that there's no no. Level of humiliation that won't be suggested you do if it's deemed popular. Uh, down to your name, it doesn't matter. Anything stupid you can figure out to do that you think an audience would like some stupidity, there's going to be somebody who will say, man, I got a great idea.
0: It it's going to make some money.
1: This is going to make some money. Go do this stupidity. As
0: a guy would say, that's what a manager do. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there's no recorded music by Buddy Bolden, yet you had to have a process to, to come up with it to, to make this soundtrack.
1: Well, I'm from New Orleans first, so I grew up with New Orleans music. Michael, Dr. Michael White, who's on the record, also played in Danny Barker's band, but he played a long time with Danny. He, he's, people from Bolden's family are in his family. The neighborhoods Bolden played in, he's grown up playing with and he's a scholar of our music. And um, I also made some assumptions. I also studied American cornet playing and the styles of the Trump, trumpet players, the cornet players who came after Bolden and in Bolden's wake. So if you take the three trumpet players that came in Bolden's wake, you can you can composite his style, certain assumptions are made. It's always interesting to me that the assumption would be made that he played less than the people who followed him. Charlie Parker didn't play less than the alto saxophones that followed him. Johann Bach didn't play less keyboard and organ than the organists that followed him. Uh, Paganini the violinists that followed him did not play more than he played. So my assumption is that Buddy Bolden could play better than three great trumpet players whose foundation are in his playing, acknowledged Joe Oliver, King Oliver, that was Louis Armstrong's mentor, sent for Armstrong in Chicago. Joe Oliver played with a lot of dignity, and he played a very syncopated style. Like he would play phrases like...
2: He yeah,
1: had like the kind of style where he would play those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Freddie Keppard, who played more of a ragtime style. Ragtime would be more like... So, wow. Bunk Johnson who played in a in a more smoky style like. So if you take those three styles Mm -hmm. and you put those styles together and make Bolden more virtuosic and louder, give him some more aggressive type of growls, it becomes...
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: Mm. You know, so Man. you you make him be more like a more like more more aggressive and more physical, and, and and fulfill more of the objectives of those three trumpet players.
0: You kind of meld them together. You meld them together. Or you see them coming out of his. They come
1: out of him in my yeah, mind. Yeah. But also, let's 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 remember that we have recordings of King Oliver playing, right? And no one can play like them, right? So the whole thing of well, if we if we had a recording, if we had a recording, we would just know what we can't sound like. And we have recordings of John Coltrane, people don't don't play like him. Can't do it. We have recordings of Charlie Parker, nobody. We have recordings of Monk, we have recordings of Miles Davis, who can play like him? When you program pieces that are like Miles Davis, Gil Evans, and you have the Gil Evans setting, whoever's playing that trumpet is very aware of how much they don't sound like Miles Davis. (laughs)
0: When you went about this, was it about responsibility, was it awesome, was it natural, was all the above?
1: Yeah, it's natural, it's just fun. You just for, felt for it. For me, it's, it's, it's fun. Yeah. I mean, I've been studying the styles and the musicians for years. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I, uh, that I just picked up because it's, it's a job. Nothing for me really is a job. It's a calling. I, I'm dedicated to it. I love it. I'm going to practice it and work on it hard. You, you're not going to pay me to make me work more. I'm dedicated to it. I was dedicated to it when I was 12 or 13. Once I got serious about it, right. and um, I'm not really—I I mean, I—I I, love—I love I me. Mean, I'm, I'm honored to to be a, a part of it. My father's a musician. I grew up around the musicians, mm-hmm. and I always want to illuminate the type of intelligence and the dignity, the humor, and the things that they actually had, so that the kind of stereotype version of who they were as people. There's always some type of counterstatement statement coming from me. Sure, there's a lot of
0: humanity and a lot of soul in the music. That that's what I got from it. Is that right.
1: Is that yeah. fair? Yeah. And and soul is a high is a high level of spiritual attainment. Yeah. People tend to think that soul means you got a toilet voice.
2: No. It
1: has nothing to do with soul. No, that's hard, soul is what we're talking soul about. is about is about that feeling. You feel better when 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 we leave if I see you. Right. And I always noticed with the jazz musicians when I was growing up, when you see them, they hug you, they had a certain warmth. And they were also the most integrated people. I grew up in segregation and of course ignorance in that, in that time, but the jazz musicians and the jazz scene was always different, even in New Orleans, which was very much Southern kind of ignorant backwards mm-hmm. uh, from, a, from a social and a civic standpoint.
0: And how about how that played into, into Bolden's upbringing? Because it was rough, it yeah, was it's tough.
1: All, it's always rough. You know, it's always rough. It's rough now. It's rough. There's a lot of minstreling going on right now, and it's rough. Yeah. So it's uh. You, you know, he was conscious. The musician King Oliver wants a quote of his that I that I love is this. He said, "Like, like left wing polit, he said, like left wing politics in the common man, jazz was a cause." <laughs> So there's always this thought that the people then didn't think, but I mean, my, my great uncle was born in 1883, and I lived with him when I was six. He was a stone cutter for the cemetery. Because in New Orleans, everybody's buried above ground. Right. And I'm gonna tell you, he, he could articulate very clearly stuff about the United States, about the Constitution, about reconstruction, very clearly. And it wasn't like in some type of homespun we be on the plantation language. When you say jazz is a cause, what do you mean? It's a cause, it, it's it's tied into democratic consciousness. Like in order for a, for democracy to work, people who have a lot have to be willing to want a lot for other people who are not like them. And that's difficult. That's asking a lot. Because human beings are clannish. Yeah, but that's what makes the sim, the symbolism what it is. That George Washington was a man who was offered a kingship and he turned down a king to be a president. Right. There's a big difference between a king and a president. Right. <laughs> So I say, yeah. Well, you know, he's still, yeah, maybe so. But <laughs> being a president is not being a king, man. Right. And uh, that same type of of, of uh, what that what what that is a symbol of is something that can be passed down to whatever level you happen to be on. And over time, many different interpretations. Of course, he lived in his time. He did the things that he did. I don't. I don't like to get bogged down into whether well he owned, he owned slaves and he did this and he did that. I'm talking about he was offered a kingship and he turned it down to be president. Right. So, um, we all have things that we we can turn down to do other things every day, and and sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Right. But for our way of life to maintain its vitality and for us to remain a nimble country, we have to figure out how we're going to integrate ourselves with, with more, uh, how we're going to integrate ourselves more as a symbol of pride than something that has to be th- forced down people's throat because they really want to be part of some tribe.
0: You do it, you go about this musically. Right now you're working on what you call a musical manifesto on American ideals. You like that? I, I wish would. I came up with that myself. That's pretty good, right? I
1: don't know who came up with that.
0: that that's, that's all right. <laughs> this uh, Swing Symphony with you all here at Jazz at Lincoln Center working with the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. That, that's a calling. That's a big mission.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, if you, if you take, for me, I just can look into my, my, my personal experiences. I had the opportunity to play with the New Orleans Philharmonic when I was 14. They rehearsed in Hollygrove, which was right next to Pigeon Town, where I'm from. And I can still remember the feeling of like adults when they played their first E-flat major chord poem. And I had the opportunity to play with symphonic orchestras all over the world. It was just a, a blessing, and, and, and a, a large part of it is luck. I practiced the pieces, but it didn't mean I would have that opportunity. So later, I had the chance to write uh, pieces for symphonic orchestra that piece was actually commissioned by the berlin philharmonic and simon rattle we had met years ago in the in the, in the 80s we were both much younger and he said man well you should write a piece and we just talked. we just had a friendship kind of we knew each other then in 2010 he was getting ready to leave the berlin philharmonic or he was he was i don't know if he was leaving in 2010 but something was happening with his with his career at that time and he said this is the time to write this piece so I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll work on this piece. And I'd written a piece before that, another symphony. It didn't sound that good. So I told him, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to try to get out of this one. He said, no, no, you got to do this one. Like this, this is the time to do it. So I did that one. And um, the Swing Symphony is just takes you through a, a lot of different strains in American music where jazz and symphonic music have worked together. We have, we have a lot of common ground across different genres and different, and then it expands on those things as if we had continued that line of reasoning, or if we had continued that line of integration. It would be as if Brown versus the Board of Education actually created integration in public schools. What would we be like? Or if, if Reconstruction had not been dismantled, if we had not backed away from all of the, the the great society programs in the 1980s, if we had not backed away from that vision of the 60s, where would we be right now? So I tend to think about that in music and use those things that already exist and expand and expound upon those things. And the Swing Symphony, when I was writing it, I took a diagram of a symphonic orchestra and I put it up on the piano. And I would, when I was orchestrating, I would look at who had played and who had not played? Who did I want to integrate? Which groups would play with which? And I also had a spatial layout. So right now I'm going to put the st- saxophone section going to converse with the French horns. Or I'm going to have the bass play and the bassoon is going to play now with the bass clarinets in our band. And our trumpets are going to play with straight music and the woodwinds are going to play. Well, now I'm going to have the percussion play, this groove that Elvin played, and I'm going to give our drums a tambourine part. So all through the Swing Symphony is all kinds of integration of families of... Uh, of instruments in in an unusual way. And you say conversation, I love that. They're talking to each other. They always are talking to each other. That's Uh, our music, we talking with each other all the time. And and what are they saying in this symphony? They're saying let's play these parts right. (laughs) 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 Now they say a lot lot of different things because I go through through the decades uh, with solutions. These are solutions we had in ragtime. We had this type of solution to syncopation. Now, I'm super syncopating it, so it's not really like ragtime. So it's ragtime. I put a 716 bar in there, a 3-8. I put the Jelly Roll bass line against the type of New Orleans march we played. Or Then I have a slow drag in there. So we'll do like uh, careless Love or blues. And then I'll use a symphonic line, like with the, with, the, with the violins and the flutes playing, a high count line like in a march, and our saxophones playing a riff and then we'll stop playing in the orchestra brass or play like a a funereal march. But you won't know who's playing. So my goal was for you not to know when we play and when the orchestra plays. Can you translate that into words and concept? Yeah, it'd be like if our government worked. (laughs) If it all worked together. Yeah, if we actually embraced democracy and greed and, and tribalism didn't make us destroy it.
0: These are tribes working together. Yeah, we
1: work together. You write it into the score. Also, we want to work together. If you take the difference in the generations, like now, kind of the the near the oldest members of, of the symphonic orchestra would be my generation. We went to camps together. So some of the players I know from when we were 15 or 16 and the younger musicians grew up listening to our records. And there's a great deal of collegiality that when I first started playing, it was not necessarily that way. That's
0: a good thing. So at a time when there's all this despair and alienation, culture wars and division, do you see this as something that can, that can bring folks to the table at least?
1: We already came to the table and played it.
0: You uh, bring, outside, bring people from the outside to the you table. You know, it,
1: it depends on what, whether people want to embrace that vision or not. A lot of times you get used to embracing a kind of nihilistic negative vision and you, you're comfortable with that and it becomes difficult for you to make those transitions
0: for example?
1: I mean you know like just negative nicknames of people could come in public and call themselves a negative name it's like kind of kids you you grow up with if it's an overweight kid or somebody people tease they start to tease themselves right if say hold on man don't let these don't let these people you're not here to entertain them you know I had a friend like that when I was growing up they say don't don't do that man don't don't, don't don't do that to keep him from picking on you yeah you become that negative you know thing. don't don't do that make make them deal with you don't don't worry about it. We'll, we'll take we'll pick up your slack because this is a very smart guy with a lot of ability but people constantly picking on him hitting him mess with <laughs> him take his money from him right. beat on beat beat him up i mean you know just the kind of stupid stuff that goes on if you have to speak for real about your experiences the level of stupidity and ignorance of it you take a sensitive guy, you know, he ain't, he ain't going to really fight nobody, and he's in a in an ignorant environment. And it's just uh
0: You become that. You become what you're call Yeah, you you'll call. become
1: that thing because right. you, I mean, what are you going to do? You're not going to fight. So you try to figure out how to get along. So right. you try to co-opt it. right? And a kind of co-opted negativity, if you're on that side of it. And if you're on the aggressive side of it, you start to be convinced that that's a victory for you. You start to, because you see, the two things work together. You start to think that choking people out or beating them into the ground or you stomping on them is something that, to be proud of, that it means you won something. When you really, it lowers your humanity to do that too.
0: All right. what, what are you referring to
1: in the larger culture? I'm referring to all the stuff that we see. I don't I don't even have to name it. We're seeing it, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about black folks, white folks, Hispanic people. It back. matter what name you call it, women. It doesn't matter you take your pick.
0: Right. Human nature.
1: H- human nature, you know. So, everybody's getting their everybody's getting their share of it.
0: So you taking are you taking an optimistic tone in this symphony or a
1: hopeful one or what what kind of tone? I'm mainly optimistic. You know, so most of my music is always always optimistic. And and we did sit down and we played it. And and the orchestra was trying to play it and even more heartening after we finished recording it and playing it, the con- our conductor, Dave Robinson, was very positive. I played in St. Louis Powell Hall many times since the 1980s. I played with the St. Louis Symphony, actually a concerti, and this is in the 80s. That's one a community that I love. Uh, David and Thelma Stewart were our sponsors for that concert, also two people that I love. They, they showed up at my mother's funeral. Mm. So everything is very personal. Uh, the orchestra gave 150% to playing it. Our orchestra, of course, wanted to play it. Then when we mixed the records, which was just last month, St. Louis Symphony sat down the first time and sent us a lot of detailed mix notes, like the notes I, I, you show, I show. Show down here. If you saw a symphonic <laughs> orchestra, sit down and listen to those tapes and say, do you have something here, do you have that? And their notes were so good and detailed and accurate that we went back in and, you know, we worked around the clock for, for two or three days to get it in a certain shape, and they met again and listened to it. And, and came back with some other very good erudite comments. So to say that it's very much a group and a community enterprise, there's a lot of people had to work to make it come together. Mm-hmm. And and it did come together. It's documented on, on the CD, and it's a, it's a large undertaking, and the parts are hard to play. It's not easy. So you never heard a string orchestra try to play like real bebop lines like Bird or something, but they're doing it on that.
0: Right, and it's out July 1st, right?
1: I don't know. I yeah, believe July so. 1st, yes.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. So Father's Day is coming up.
1: Mm-hmm. What does it
0: mean to you? Does it take on special meaning in any you way? You know,
1: yeah, yeah. I love my daddy. You know, I always, I always talk about him. A lot of times, people are at odds with their, with their parents or their father, but I mean, I have such a deep love and respect for my father. And uh,
0: do you find that the older you get, the smarter he gets?
1: No, he was always smart to me.
0: Well, you, do you realize more <laughs> now?
1: <laughs> I realize more, but I always looked up to him. You know, I never mm-hmm. had a thing where. But he was cool. He's a jazz musician. You know, he was never judgmental of people. He was easy to. He was easy. He was easy to, to embrace. Do you hear yourself
0: saying the same things to your kids?
1: You know. Yeah, in a way. But I mean, I I was always saying his his stuff. I taught a lot of classes. First time I started teaching, classes, I was doing some radio shows, TV shows. He said, "Man, I hear you. I hear you stealing all my stuff." (laughs) I said, "Man, I'm I'm stealing good material." (laughs) And you know, yeah, I think and my father and also all the fathers, you know, a lot of times from being out there playing gigs and seeing people with their kids, fathers and mothers, but since we're talking about Father's Day, to see people at the end of a night with their son or their daughter, eleven o'clock, ten thirty, eleven thirty, with a with a group of kids they want me to hear them play or they you know, they've waited around and I mean, I've been seeing that since nineteen eighty one. And I always tell the kids, that's your father, is that your and they say, Yeah, I said, Remember. It's eleven thirty. You know, your father's. You got to. You got to go to work tomorrow six thirty in the morning. <laughs> so your father's here with you, and uh, it's, it's always that feeling I have of, of a community that I love. I mean, I was just in a in a high school uh, in Ohio when I, when I was at Kenyon College just last just two 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 three days ago teaching right. two two young trumpet players. It was packed with with parents and kids, yeah. like a community revival or something. So you know, I mean, I. Uh, I, I always loved loved that feeling. That's a feeling we have, that uh, that we need we need to magnify that feeling.
0: There's a there's a line in uh, your letters book to a young jazz musician where you say, "Why play jazz?" This is as, you're a teenager now. You, you didn't feel meaning. Girls didn't like it. Right? No one made money from it. When I was a kid, we equated the past with degradation and the useless. You didn't necessarily get what your dad was playing. Right, you you were into coolin' the gang, like yeah, you said, my, and Stevie Wonder and all yeah,
1: that. My my daddy played modern jazz. Okay, so my father was playing like songs in five four, and I, the music we didn't like was like New Orleans music, <speaking in> the <background> <speaking in> the <background> with the banjo and you know kind of tourists and you yuck yucking and dancing. And my daddy didn't play that kind of music. He played like like uh, the music John Coltrane and them were playing, but he had very little audience for that style of music. So we, I always empathize with him because I was always at his gigs. But you never thought you could play his music because it was hard. Mm-hmm. And my father really could play. So when you were growing up playing, you could play you know, popular music, but you wasn't going to play with him. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't. And he also was not against you playing that music, so you couldn't push against him. I remember one time my father played, we played in a dance at this, at this high school, McMain High School, and my father came to play uh, with our funk band. So, you know, cats knew my daddy was a musician, but they didn't really know who he was. You know, nobody didn't really know. Plus, we didn't, most of the people in the band, we didn't know what playing actually was. Most of what we listened to was, you know, the, f- the funk music of that time, where people not really playing on the records. They're pop records. And to play bebop or to play, like, musical ideas that go on and on and on, we had, were not exposed it. I was because of my father, but the other cats in my band, uh, fantastic. we were like brothers so we are very close and I said well my daddy gonna play so he knew the members of the Crusaders because in the south at that time my guys my daddy's age they all knew each other there's only maybe 25 jazz musicians in the entire south trying to play modern jazz and uh, the, the cats and the Crusaders with, with Joe Sample and everybody my father knew them so we played a song called uh, Keep That Same Old Feeling, but it has a bridge. And I know my father didn't know the song. So they're like a kind of difficult pro- progression and funk songs never really have bridges like that. So when my father came up to play, said, let him play on this song. So the other trumpet player was my partner named Lebo. John Roche was his name. He said, man, you can't, you can't have your daddy play on that song, man, what are you gonna do when you get to all these changes? So I said, man, my daddy can play, man. He gonna, he gonna listen to that one time, he gonna be able to play it. He was like, man, no way in the world. So, you know, we're playing a dance, man. So my daddy got to the tune he played. Then, okay, after the second time, he could play the bridge. Then he played like real, like bebop, like in the tradition of Bob Powell and, and McCoy Tyner. And he, I mean, that's, that's how he could play. So he started playing the trumpet. He looked at me, he was in shock. He said, man, what is that your daddy playing, man? <laughs> I never heard nothing like that. So nobody knew what playing was. And then he got on the microphone and said, this Ellis Marcellus, y'all, he's announcing to the crowd. <laughs> you know I mean? people, people at the dance, they don't care about no. nobody playing. Right. And uh, it was, uh, to give you a sense of like, just the kind of, the vibe, And you know, for us with our dad, and he was cool with it. I mean, he, he was happy to, happy to play, he played Fender Rose. He was, he was like, yeah, man, you know, that's nice. But he wasn't trying to play what we were playing. He was right. trying to play. Right. And uh, it was a sacrifice that came with playing. And he, and he he paid that he, he sacrificed. It was a decision. It was his decision. A conscious decision. And made. and he played. So right. you know that's what he decided to do. Right.
0: I love your speech to Kenyon
1: College. I watched it the other day. It's great. <laughs> Thank you.
0: It's bro. great. You look like you're having fun doing a commencement <laughs> speech. Were
1: you? Yeah. Yeah. I have fun talking to young people. Yeah. And you know because because the, the alumni have been asking me to I, some of the the, the guys who asked me to do it for years. I have known for 30 years. So Murray Harwood started telling me about Kenyon College in 1965. We were doing a show <laughs> about Snoopy in Berlin to teach kids jazz. And then and then with uh, Mark Rosenthal, has been on Jazz Lincoln Center board for 20, 20 years, 20 something years. I was man, come to Kenyon, come to Kenyon. So you finally Barry showed Schwartz, up. come to Kenyon. Yeah, so finally I said, okay, I'm coming to Kenyon. And, uh,
0: but you looked like you were having, you really enjoying the moment. I,
1: I did because I, I enjoyed the people I met. You know, one one of the, Ruth, the, the, the other lady who was awarded was a, a, a scholar on Genghis Khan you know, and on Asian. So I was talking with her and I, I you know, I, I read books on Genghis Khan. I like Genghis Khan. And she was telling me stuff really counter to what I knew. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I, you know, listening to what you saying, I said, well, I don't know. So I was talking to one of the other teachers. I said, yeah, I was talking to Ruth and she was saying this and that. And that. I was kind of like, I don't know. He said, well, you know, she speaks Finnish, Chinese, Japanese, Tangut. He went through like eight languages. He said, Well, she speaks these seven or eight languages. Do you speak any of them? I said, I don't know. He said, I'm just trying to let you know who you were talking to. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I enjoyed the whole experience. And I always enjoy seeing the families and the kids mm-hmm. and all that.
0: There's yeah. a great line you have in there. You say, Live life, you tell these young people, live life as if it's the fourth quarter.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, I told them about how time is. Yes. And, and I was trying to put a perspective about, about old folks and time. Because if you're playing a game that has a clock, you ain't looking at the clock in the first quarter. No. But boy, when you get to that fourth quarter, that clock is all you can see. And uh, you know, you I was telling you, you can't. You, your life is not a menu of experiences that you pick and choose from what you want. You don't know what's gonna happen, and all c- stuff happens that you. A lot of stuff happens you don't want to happen, right. and you got to be present. Like you can't be on your phone when it's happening. Right. And we have a problem with kind of transferred experience. Right. You know, you get on the See, there you go. Just there it is right, me, right there. Right right. That's what they're just saying. Things.
0: It's emerging. The phone just, got mad. Just stop calling. Me. The, phone not, got, the phone got mad. I told you not to call me here. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. No, but you had, you had a great line there. You said, we need you, graduates, to do all the things Alexa cannot. Right. Right? The technology's taking over our lives, especially yeah. young people.
1: But it's like the Tower of Babel, just for today. The Tower of Babel always a myth that I loved in the Bible, People built something that they thought was more important than being people. And that's, I think that's just a cycle that humanity has, has gone through this many times. We know the last, I don't know, 4 or 5,000 years of history, but maybe history, man, it may have been civilizations, 50,000. We don't really actually know. You know, the science does not actually tell us. Right. So go ahead. they want you bad. Kill them. It's my notice. son. Okay, it's right, my kid. Like, there you go, that's Speaking why. of Father's Day, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> when, you,
0: when you sat, when you stood there and looked out at, the, at those young people, did you? What, what did you? What was the sensation? Do you feel like I've reached a certain point and I need to? I need to share it.
1: You know. No, I mean, I've, I've, ta- I've given a lot of commencement speeches. Right. I've talked to kids a lot right. in schools all over the the country of all kinds. you, know, you remember in the. In the 80s, I went to over a over thousand schools. I mean, I, that's what I did, 80s and 90s. I worked, I've been, I, I have a lot of experience. Sure, and but
0: there's, for some reason, I've seen you do a bunch of these. This one looked a little different to me. I'm not sure why.
1: No, felt the same? Man, I, I don't I don't know. I always try to be be for real with uh, with kids and their parents. I'm always honored to be there. And I, sometimes I have to fight down getting full sometimes. Just, I think when you get older, you just, you're older, you know fourth quarter yeah you know I don't know if I'm in a fourth quarter yet but, <laughs> <laughs> Half time. but you know you know what I mean you don't know, yeah, yeah you start to I think uh but I, I don't I never really know how what I'm I don't I can't analyze myself you know and I don't I don't even try to do it I, it's like when you're playing you cannot analyze what you're playing I once asked Jerry Mulligan and on an NPR show how to, about great solos, so the question was, how do you play a great solo? He said, well, I don't know how, if I can tell you how to play a great solo, but I can tell you how to not play a great <laughs> solo. Stand up and say, I'm getting ready to play a great solo. Right. And I, I always laugh, I think that was 20 years, that was 1996, so that was 23 right. years ago. But I, I always think about, you can't, you can't observe your life while you live it, you're living, so.
0: Right. But you do wonder how what you're saying is being received.
1: You know, yeah, that's that's only natural. But I learned the first time I went to Japan. You never know how what you're saying is being received because the Japanese audience is absolutely quiet. <laughs> man, I was like, boy, these people really don't like this music. That was 1981. Wow. So I was 19, and I thought, man, we just we we are bombing here. It were just.
0: <laughs> and you're dying out there. And
1: I felt it, but then after it was like, yeah, you know. So I don't I never presume to to know what any person thinks about about anything. Right. Because nobody knows what I'm thinking about stuff. (laughs) And that was another one of my daddy's big things. There we go. You know, that was my daddy was always, Man, you don't know what nobody's thinking, man. They might be thinking I'm hungry. (laughs) 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 Jumping to conclusions like that. Yeah, because and a lot of times you notice you have conversations, somebody says, I bet they were I think they think and I bet you they were man, you don't know what they think.
0: You have no idea. You have no idea. I get that all the time, by the way.
1: Really? Yeah. They read my face. They, 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 they know, know what, what you think. They have no idea. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I'm literally, like you said, thinking I'm hungry. <laughs> right. right.
1: You're thinking, man, I, I, do I have the right shoes on? I got to call my wife back. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. And
0: they have no idea. Right. What, what's... There's so many life lessons, right? Well, what's the one you most recently thought about that you know was an aha moment or you just were thankful for that made you full?
1: you know i think the thing i've been thinking about the most is a uh, is the the need to create space through humility and through listening the need to create space like when you listen you create space and even if 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 you're if you're humble you create space so that's the thing i've been thinking about how is do it, you create more space is that hard to do yeah, it's hard to create space. It's Physically, really mentally, it's hard in every way. That's why yoga is hard. That's why the deepest punishment in our culture is solitary confinement. <laughs> it's hard to just sit.
0: Do you have any answers on that one? No. That's that's a profound question. That's my answer. That's a little too profound. Yeah, you don't
1: know mean me? that's my that's my answer. No, I don't. <laughs> that's what my little brother we call him the Oracle because he knows everything. He says the. The more I read, the more I realize. This study, I realize I don't know anything. <laughs> that's my that? mantra. I, I do not one answer I can be sure of. I do not know. Yeah, and that's the truth.
0: <laughs> but you find that musically, that the need to create space is incredibly important.
1: Yeah, with your listening, and you know when you like the like the album we did of Buddy Bolden music. When you play New Orleans music, other people are playing the whole time. So the music is cacophonous, there's a lot of, the clarinet plays with the trumpet and the trombone plays with the, tr- with the trumpet. Three people are playing melody lines together. You have to create even more space, even though y'all are all playing together. And you have to be able to hear them. So you can play and still hear them. Space doesn't mean you're absolutely quiet. It means you're listening and responding appropriately to the space that they're uh, playing in.
0: And when you try to apply that to life?
1: You know, it's it's life is 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 much more difficult because there are many dynamics that were set in play before you came on the scene. You're born m- midstream. My great uncle had a funny saying. He said, "You didn't mess this up. You're not gonna fix it." <laughs> you know, and and when you're playing, you the, the life of the song is the duration of that experience. It requires discipline, but it does not require the same discipline that life requires. In in life you're always in a circle. So you have a lot below you and a lot above you. You have a lot to the left, to the right, and all around you. And you can only perceive what you can. Most of it you cannot you can't perceive it. Right. So even if you're trying, you you're gonna be ignorant to most of what's going on. I was
0: looking to end on a hopeful note here.
1: <laughs> That's good. Acknowledging your ignorance is hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like my, I used that thing in the Kenyan college, thing my daddy would do in the class. He'd make four people stand back to back right, in a room. right, And he would say, describe what you see. And then he'd tell other person, describe what you see. You just, So, of course, you're describing different things. Four you're, people. At this, you're describing that. You're describing the, wa- the windows you see. you describing the clock. You're describing a blackboard. You're describing a piano and a bass. And he would say, now... Does the fact that y'all all see different things mean that we're not in the same room? Then we say we in the same room. So does the fact that you don't see what he's seeing mean that he's wrong and you're right? Now think of all of what the, the, the four of y'all, with your perspective, think of all in this room you still can't see. And that's how I want you to come to learning this stuff that I'm teaching y'all. You don't know. And be open to many possibilities. And there could be many possibilities, including the opposite to the one you believe, and y'all could both be true. No. Yes. No, I'd be right. You see that? There see? you go. That's why he taught I'd you that. I'd be right. That's why, he, that's why he taught you that. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at the clock, but that's a window on the other side. It's <laughs> a
0: good place right there. <laughs> You're thank right, you,
1: man. Mo, man, always a pleasure. You know, I love you. Back at I you, I love man. seeing you, man. It's, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and thank you. It's a, it's a privilege to
0: be with oh, you, man. Oh, man, my, my privilege. Seriously. I mean,
1: I'm not playing. We're not doing the thing like that No, no, no. It's just a genuine yeah, man. love and respect I have for you. Thank you. Back at you, man. Yes, sir. Thank you.
0: I Most wish true. we could work a place where we could play this play some more. Play, play us out. <laughs>
2: talk. That's
1: the first time I ever got that one right. That's fun in all his music. You can have fun doing that. Great stuff. You must have had
0: a ball making this one. Yeah. I made your point.